Thank you, Jesus. Every time I close in prayer and worship, I always have the temptation to go back into the song. And then I promise the worship team that, no, I wouldn't. Because today, at the closing of today, I really want to go into a time of worship. So today, um, I don't know what will happen at the altar call, but at the closing 10 or 15 minutes of this, I really want to move into a time of worship. Um, because I really feel that today, um, the Word of God is drawing us in. It's calling us into a time of worship. Amen? Okay. Um, anyways, that's my closing. But today, we're going to start a half a year series on First and Second Samuel. And I'm going to do something a little different um, than what we're normally used to. So I tell you what, um, the privilege of having, you know, preached before the 7th of July this year is next week, uh, tomorrow, not next week, tomorrow, you will get the true overview of the first and second book of the book of Samuel from no other than Pastor Chu. So tomorrow, tune in, you get the full preview of first and second Samuel. But as I was preparing the overview, what really laid on my heart is we're studying the life of King David, okay? And I don't know how to talk about the you know, the huge chunk of the life of David in 30 minutes and explain to you one of the most famous kings in Jewish history, the most famous kings in Christian history, the most, one of the most famous kings in history itself, all right? And how do we sum it up in 30 minutes? And I, that's one of my difficulties, but as I was praying over this, um, and I have like four sermons to pre uh, that I prepared on this topic, I was really led to this one because I asked myself, um, what is King David really known for? All right, what is King David really known for? Okay, shout back to me, you have permission. What, is, what do you think King David was really known for? Anybody? Okay, I heard Goliath. I heard Bathsheba. All right, very good. It's true. Uh, not wrong, not wrong. What else? <laughs> Handsome. Okay, very good. Man of the God's own heart. One more. What's David known for? Worship. Okay, sorry. She's a shepherd. That's, okay, all that is true. All that is good. All that is true about King David. So um, out of all the things that we know about King David, um, Bathsheba was the only negative one. Um, and uh, I don't know who said that, but we, uh, we'll pray for you later. <laughs> it came from here, by the way. Somewhere here. The next gen said it. Um, doesn't matter. Because I can, tell you any, I can tell you more things worse than Bathsheba. All right? So... What, what, do I, what do I say about the life of, of, of King David just in 40 minutes, 30 minutes before we go into a time of worship and to really usher in the presence of God is uh, I wanted to say he was a shepherd. It's true. I want to talk about life as a shepherd. I want to talk about life as a king, how he united the kingdoms of Israel and he was the original, he's the OG UK, all right? United Kingdom, all right? He's the original uh, uh, United Kingdom. I could have. I want to. I could have talked about Goliath, but you've heard Goliath many times. I've, I could have talked about Bathsheba as well. Um, Some way down uh, the weeks, we will be talking about Goliath and and Bathsheba. So I, I don't want to cover that. Then I thought, hey, let's cover the rare things in David's life. Yeah. How many of you know that? You know he's a murderer, but how many of you know he's a father of a rapist? I want to talk about that, but maybe later on. How many of you know that he's a father of a murderer as well? He's not just a murderer himself. He's a father of a murderer as well. Um, and there's so many interesting points about David's life. And I just want to, before I go into my sermon, I just want to say, the best part about biblical history, when you open up the Bible and you want to study a historical figure, it's so interesting that God does not leave out 
the negative parts of our life. God does not leave out the nasty parts about King David's life. He doesn't. He puts it all in um, um, and he says, there you go. This is the king after God's own heart. All the nasty stuff in there, he's still a king after God's own heart. And I, every time I, I hear that phrase and I go, God, and you know, it, before I became a pastor, um, ooh, many moons back, I've always asked God and I says, God, I would love, I would love to be known not for being this, not for doing this, but I always love to be known as a man after God's own heart. And, you know, every year I prayed a prayer and I said, God, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? And today, that will be the focus of my sermon. And at, at years of, you know, just fellowshipping with God, I feel this is what it means. So I want to ask before I start. I want to ask you, you have, to, you have to feel it, you have to want it, you have to be hungry for it. Just like King David, do you want to be a man after God's own heart? And this, of course, man is gender neutral. It could be man or woman. Do you want to be a man after God's own heart? What do you want to be known for at the end of your life? What do you want to be known for to your sons and daughters or your grandsons and granddaughters? What do you want to be known for in your family circle, in your relatives? What do you want to be known for in this life? The richest man, the most powerful man, the man that started every time he start up a business, it will be 100% successful. The man whose shares will 100% uh, uh, go up. What do you want to be known for? The man with, the, with, with, with house proud, you know, you, you're proud to go back home and you, your, your, house, your home is very pretty. A man who have known to have the most beautiful wife. Do you want to be known as that man? You know, or the man who have the best Bible knowledge. What does it mean if you want to be known to be a man after God's own heart? And I want to pray that after, at the end of just this 30 minutes, a very concise version, I want to pray that you have this longing to be that man. Again, I want to repeat, gender neutral, all right? Man means man and woman. I want to pray that you would, I want to drive that longing into you, that as we study in the next 12 weeks about King David's life, you begin to feel that I want to be that man, called onto him, drawn onto him. You know, if you're going to close, draw me onto you. You know, never let me go. So what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? There are so many verses in the Bible that I can pull from. I could not choose one. There's so many, right? Uh, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? You're obedient to God. You're, you're humble before God. You're, you yearn after God. You know, you want God's presence. All those are correct answers. And because I cannot choose a verse from First and Second Samuel, and we're going to study it anyways along the road, I choose a verse from the Psalms. Do you know that half the Psalms were written by King David? I think, if I'm not wrong, 77 out of 150 Psalms were written by King David. And then you've got to ask yourself, which is, out of all the 77 Psalms, what do, I have to, what do I pick to really encapsulate the meaning of being a person after God's own heart? Anybody want to venture a guess? If you can guess that Psalm out of 77 Psalms that he's written, I'll buy you dinner. I really will buy you dinner. Anybody want to venture a guess? Throw out a number. 51. Very good psalm. I like that. 51. You know, uh, uh, restore the joy of my salvation. Love that psalm. But not really. Next psalm. Two more guesses. Psalms 91. Oh, beautiful. Hide me in the dwelling place of the most high, you know, and I will not be harmed by anything on earth, by any disease whatsoever. Good psalm. One more psalm. 33. 33. 
23. 23 was written by David, by the way, right? God is the good shepherd. He will lead me in paths of green waters, uh, green pastures, fresh waters, still waters, and uh, paths of righteousness. Good psalm. But today, I want to go and study the whole psalm of Psalm 22. Close. Close. I saved uh, 40 bucks. Say 40 bucks. I was sweating for a little while, all right? I didn't tell you what dinner. Chakwe Tao is the dinner, all right? Uh, not a steak dinner. Saved uh, 40 bucks. But uh, I want to study Psalm 22. Now, how many of you here, be honest, you know Psalms 22? You know Psalm, yeah, you love Psalms 22. Psalm 22 is the, it's the psalm of your heart. Okay, today, you're going to love Psalms 22. It's one of my favorite psalms written by David because the moment you read the first verse, which I will, I will turn very soon, the moment you read the first verse, and if you know your Bible very well, you will know why it is one of my favorite psalms um, and written by King David because it's not just a psalm about lamentations, not just a psalm about worship, but it is a prophetic psalm about the future of the world and the future of the New Testament. And Psalms 22 goes like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that familiar? Sounds familiar. Who else in the Bible said this? Jesus, hallelujah, your Bi the Bible reading plan really worked out. You guys know your Bible very well, very good, very good. You know, so I want to explain 1st and 2nd Samuel. So I will bring 1st and 2nd Samuel into my sermon, but I will explain it through the lens of Psalms 22. And I want to explain why Psalms 22 is a beautiful psalm and why it foreshadows the cross, why it foreshadows Jesus Christ, and why if we adopt the attitude and the character of Psalms 22, I believe we are just one step closer to be a man or a person after God's own heart. Let me read verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night. But I find no rest. You see, when King David wrote this, there was no explanation to what season of his life he wrote this psalm. So no one... No commentary, no historian, no Jewish historian is able to point out which period of David's life did he write this psalm. Is it before he became king? Because David was anointed, but not yet appointed as king. That was my first draft of my sermon. Are you, anoint you are anointed, but not yet appointed. What do you do? My first draft. You know, was it written in that period of his life? Was it written when Saul was chasing him? Uh, and trying to murder him. Was it written when he first became king? He became king of Judah, then he became king of Israel. Was it that period, or was it a period where Absalom, his son, was, was revolting against him? Or was it in the final days of his life that he wrote this psalm? Now, it is, okay, I'm going to give you my opinion. I truly believe this psalm was written in the final days of his life. When he's, he's at the tail end of his life, and now he's got years of experience, and I believe God dropped a prophetic word upon him and says, my son, King David, write this psalm to foreshadow what will come, which is Jesus Christ. So why would David write this psalm? This psalm says, David feels like God has forsaken him. When in his life did God ever forsake him? He cries out to God by day. And then he says something very profound here. He starts the psalm by saying, I cried out to you, but you do not answer me. I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of King David. How many of us have cried out in prayer, cried out from the bottom of our heart, and God does not answer you? 
He's absolutely silent. How many of us ever, ever wailed before God, ever cried literal tears before God? God, save me. Do not forsake me. And the heavens are silent. And if you've ever experienced the silence of God for a season of your life, then you would resonate with this psalm because David says, I cried out to you day and night, but you do not answer. So David finds no rest. It is, it is in my opinion, if you read the whole life of King David, I, I, I feel like there's certain, certain points of the, his life that this was referring to. For example, I feel, and I refer to my notes here, there was a point in David's life where he pretended to be crazy. Do you remember? He pretended to be insane. He pretended to be crazy, and he was, he was in the camp of the Philistines, and he pretended to be crazy, and he had to pretend to be crazy so that they do not kill him. And in those short verses, it says that this, David experienced a distress, a discouragement. And, and, and many scholars believe that it was in that time he believed that God has abandoned him. Why have you abandoned me? That I have to be crazy in order not to be killed by my enemies. Why do you have to abandon me, Lord? A few more, a few more things. For example, when he did lay with Bathsheba, um, and then he had his first son because he he committed adultery because then he conspired to murder the husband of Bathsheba. Then he married Bathsheba and then she conceived and then she gave birth. The law says your punishment will be the death of your first son. And I believe he cried. He ran to the altar. He, he fasted. He cried. He prayed. And it is believed that one of his prayers is, God, God, would you forgive? God, God, would you withhold your hand against my son? God, God, where are you? And the heavens were silent. And there was no answer. And the only answer God gave is that your punishment will be the death of your, first, of your firstborn son from Bathsheba. The heavens were silent. But I believe there's, there's one more instance in David's life that um, the heavens were silent for three months. You see, at the end, when David became king of all, all right, he did something called a census. He counted the soldiers. He counted how many soldiers he had. He counted how many people in his kingdom. You're going to have to read uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24 to know this one. All right, don't worry. It will be preached coming up. But when he counted, he invoked the wrath of God because God says, thou shalt not count the people that belongs to him. You shall not number how many people you have, your strength of your numbers, when it is owned not by you, but by God. And God was angry and God gave him three choices for his punishment. You know, I'm so glad that God does not uh, do it to us now these days, right? He says, Isaac, one day I, you did something wrong in my sight. Now I give you three choices for your punishment. You choose one. I will not be able to choose, all right? The punishment will be uh, um, somebody will attack Jerusalem uh, and people will die. A famine will come into the city and people will starve to death. Or a disease will come into the city uh, uh, um, and then people will die. And David, David said for three months, God, God, where are you? Would you forgive would you not forgive the people for the mistake of one? Why would God punish the people for the mistakes of one? Why? Stay tuned. Come and listen to our preaching, all right? You find out, or do you want to know now? Don't worry. Come, stay tuned. Stay tuned. You'll be preaching about, I think, 12 and a half weeks' time, all right? But stay tuned. Why? Why does God have to punish so many people for the sin of one man? Why? And God, David says, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? You just not answer me. You see, in times in your life where you feel like God is far away, where you feel like God is not by your side, where you feel like the heavens are open, what did David say next to give him the title, a man after God's own heart? And his response was beautiful. So number one, in verse one and verse two, 
he says, I am going through distress. Now, God, where are you? So he does not complain about his distress. He does not complain about his circumstance, which we are, we're all very common to do, right? When we're going through problems, when we're going through difficulties, when we have an argument, we would always complain about the situation. But when David goes through a hard time, he says, God, God, where are you? He's not complaining about the situation. He's grieving because the relationship was strained between him and God. Amazing man. Amazing man. How many of us here, you go through difficult times in your life and your first response, you complain, all right? About your boss, about your spouse, about your kids, about your friends, about your, whoever it is, you just complain. But this, this guy called David, he does not. He just said, God, there's something wrong with my life, but I'm grieving because I do not feel your presence. Then he says, verse 3, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Point number one, when you are grieving and distressed and you feel like the heavens are silent, the response that you give, the response in order to encourage your spirit, in order to pray into your spirit, to preach to yourself, is to proclaim who God is. That's who David is. He proclaims and he reminds himself, even if the heavens are silent, God, you are still a holy one. You are still enthroned in the heavens. God, you are still trusted and faithful. You are faithful to my ancestors. You will be faithful to me. You delivered my ancestors and you will deliver me. He remembered who God is. And that is why it's important that your view and your lens of who God is is important in your life. Who is God to you? Because if God is a punisher to you, then you will not know how to draw upon the strength of a punisher. If God is distant from you, then you don't know how to have a relationship with a very distant God. See here, David shows that he is close in relationship to God and he draws on that strength. So if I was King David, which I'm not, but if I was King David, my prayer would go, God, you were so faithful to Abraham when you call him out of Ur, you established for him a nation and then you gave him a son called Isaac and you gave Isaac a son called Jacob and Lord Jesus, you established the kingdom of Israel through them, Lord Jesus Christ. But when Egypt enslaved them, you are faithful to deliver. You are faithful to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and you have the 10 plagues, the miracles from heaven and you parted the Red Sea in order to deliver the Israelites from their, the hands of the Egyptians. You were faithful to Moses. You were faithful to Joshua. When Joshua went up against giants, you slew them in, on behalf of Joshua. When Moses went to Mount Sinai, he did not die in the presence of God, but instead, he saw God face to face, the back of Moses' head to God's face, to God, back of God's hand. God, you are such a faithful God. When you are having problems in your life and when God feels like he's silent, do you have incidences in your past to prove that God is faithful to you? Can you draw upon the richness of your history that God has been faithful to you in order to encourage yourself? You see, I'm, I have a digital Bible. I, sorry, I have a digital journal. Um, I'm still looking for the best version of a digital journal. Um, and I have not found the best one yet, all right, because I'm a very particular person, as you already know by Christmas. All right, so I'm looking for the best digital journal because in that digital journal is where I write down events in my life where God came through for me. When I prayed for healing, God came through. 
where I prayed that I passed my exams, God came through. Where I prayed in my most stressful moments of my life, God came through. And every time I'm discouraged, every time I feel like the heavens are silent, I would draw from the faithfulness of God and says, God, you were faithful to me before. You brought me here today. You will be faithful to me and you will see me through. And that's how I encourage myself. What does it mean to be a, a person after God's own heart? You have a history of a relationship with God that nothing in this world will be able to shake you because when you go into that presence and you go into a space where you draw upon the strength of God, you have a history with God that you can draw from. You have a well that does not run dry. You have a well that always overflows and it is only your responsibility to fill up that journal and to draw from that well. Nobody else can do it for you. You cannot pray to God and draw from my experience because I am not you and you are not me. You need that relationship with God. And then God says, wow, you are a man after my own heart. But you see, it doesn't stop there. You see, verse 6, it goes back into what problems David is having and he says, but I am a worm. I am a man scorned by everyone, despised by all people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Does it not remind you of Jesus Christ on that cross? Where everybody was pasted on that cross, and everybody mocked Jesus. And what, and what did they say? They say, hail, hail, king of the Jews. If you really are the king, why don't you call your angels to deliver you and bring you down. They mocked Jesus. And David, in his prophetic voice, says, I mocked to God. When in David's life was he mocked? When in David's life were people hurling insults at him? So there's one problem. The first problem, he feels a distance from God. Now the second problem, he feels a distance from man. Now here, I do not believe it refers to his enemies. I believe this portion of Scripture refers to the people that are closest to him, that are wounding him, the people that are closest to him that are supposed to be there, supposed to put their trust, supposed to be faithful to him, supposedly supposed to have your back. But the knife and your back is there and they stab. And now this group of people, for example, there is a man in 1st 2nd Samuel called a man of Shimei. Shimei was the descendant of King Saul. When Absalom was riding against David, and David rode through a town, there was a guy called Shimei, a descendant of Saul, and Shimei started throwing stones, hurling insults, mocking David, saying that the Lord judge you because you are never the rightful ruler of Israel. He, he mocked him. Then, if, if a random person mock you, fine. But if your son rises up against you, that's another whole thing coming. You see, there is, a, there is a guy in the Bible called Absalom. He's also very handsome. He's got hair that is very thick, all right? Nowadays, days, guys, you, we, we can't really have very thick, luscious hair, okay? Because it's uh, a little bit more controversial, but, you know, it's coming back into popularity nowadays. Days. But back then, if you've got thick, luscious hair, the Bible calls you very handsome. Right, Gable? Okay. Hallelujah. I, I just, I threw that in just for you. Hard boy. Okay. I, there was a guy called Absalom. And, you know, it really pains me. Can you imagine? Now, if you are a parent in this place, 
You love your son. You gave your son the best. You gave your son the seat at the table. You clothe him. You feed him. You play with him. You laugh with him. You educate him. You shower him with gifts. You go on holidays with him. You do everything with him. And when he comes to an age, he revolts against you and he demands that he take your place as king. And when, you know, there was, there, I think it's what, eight chapters devoted to Absalom's revolt against King David. That's Absalom. Okay, there's two more, and then I'm going to go on. I think the, the most painful one for me is Ziklag. You know, remember David at Ziklag? Where David had to pretend to fight for the Philistines, he came back home to his base at Ziklag, and then it is found that the uh, Amalekites have raided the village, taken away his wife, taken away all the women, taken away the children, taken away the treasures, and at that point, the 400 men who were supposed to be the most loyal soldiers, who were supposed to be the most loyal friends, who were supposed who have already walked with him through the deserts, walked with him through Saul, walked with him through life, your closest allies, turned against him, heard insults, mocked him, and wanted to stone David to death. And I believe in this period, David says, God, you see those who mocks me, you see those who hurl insults at me, and then he gives a reason why. Because I trust in you, God. You see, people mock you, can mock you for many things. If they mock you for how you look, that's one thing, all right? That's their problem. If they mock you for, I don't know, how much you weigh, that's their problem. If you mock you because you're dumb, that's also, that's crazy. That's their problem. But if they mock you because you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, man, the God, God says, now I will be your avenger. I will be your revenger. I will come and retribute in your behalf. So, so David says, he trusts in the Lord, they mocked me. Let the Lord rescue him, they say. Let him deliver him. So what are the people doing, his closest ally? They are mocking his identity in the Lord. So the first problem, distance from God. The second problem, people mock his identity. Now what is David's response? Beautiful. Verse 9, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast, from birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not, far, do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. You see, David gives you, you know, David, if we really follow the blueprint of King David and how David's response to God through the Psalms, in all honesty, wow, that's like, that's your psych, you don't need to see a psychologist anymore. You don't need to see the counseling anymore because hallelujah, King David has paid it all for you. He has done it all. You take his blueprint one by one. When people mock your identity, you don't just retaliate. He doesn't just mock them back. He does not take a sword and says, I'm a better fighter because David was known as the greatest warrior in all of Israel. He could have easily taken a sword and just says, I tell you what, I'll be like, uh, you know, those uh, Chinese drama where a million people are coming and one hero, one hero will kill them all somehow. Somehow, all right, some superpower going on. He will kill them all. Love to watch those, those movies uh, uh, because of how cool it is and also how hilarious it is, all right? And David, that could have been David. I was the greatest warrior of all. I slayed Goliath, and then after that, I slayed 10,000, and I could have killed all of you. But no, I don't mock you back. What does David do? He goes back into the presence of God and now begins to speak of his identity he begins to be secure in his own identity in Christ. And he says, you know me even before I was in my mother's womb, you breathe your life into me. That is who I am. 
And if you're going through a tough time, if you're bullied at school, if you're bullied at the workplace, if your boss don't like you, make fun of you, if whoever in your life, your father may not like you, your mother may not like you, your siblings may not like you, and make fun of you, go into and retreat into the presence of God. Just like Jesus, he retreated and he rested in the presence of God, and there, there he builds his identity in the Lord. You know, David wrote one psalm that, I think it's the fifth of six psalms that I memorized, Psalms 139. You know the psalm. And I memorized this psalm because when I was going through a very difficult season of my life, just just like David, Psalms 139 literally saved my life. Psalms 139 literally changed my life. And, and, and there's a portion in Psalms 139 that goes like this. You created me in my inmost being. You knit me in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Go on. Your works are wonderful. I know it full well. My frame was not hidden from you when you wove me in the secret place, when you wove me and made me in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. I lost my train of thoughts. Your your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in the book before one of them came to be. Hallelujah. Your thoughts, how precious are your thoughts for me, O God? How vast are the numbers of them? If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. How many of us, when you feel small, when you feel like people make fun of you, have you, have you ever felt that way? When somebody rebukes you? When somebody makes fun of you? When somebody makes you look small? When somebody sarcastically says something in order to make you look intellectually inferior to them? How many of you have gone through that season? It could be work. It could be family. It could be relationship. It could be friendship. Whatever it is, how many of us would go into the secret place and say, God, I would draw from the strength of the Most High. Do you want to be the man after God's own heart? Then God says, retaliation is not at the tip of your tongue. Instead, a retreat into the presence of God and know who you are in Him. And I go to my last point. And as if the distance from God is not enough, as if mocking from your loved ones is not enough, then David said, now I have enemies that encircles me from all sides. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls from Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open up their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a like a pot shirt, and my mouth sticks to the root of my uh, uh, my tongue sticks to the root of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Just a just a quick thing. I, I just want I researched quite a bit into this. I don't have time to explain all, but I, I want to explain the strong bulls of Bashan. I like where he draws the analogy, the strong bulls of Bashan. See, what is, what is the region of Bashan called? When Moses told, uh, gave the baton to Joshua to go and conquer the promised land, Joshua conquered the promised land, and one of the very first few areas that he conquered was Deuteronomy 3, Bashan. 
the area of Bashan was known to have a, a king in that area called the King of Og. The King of Og was so large, and he's one of the Goliaths in the land. So before David slew Goliath, there was Joshua. Joshua slew uh, one of the very first Goliaths um, of the land. So he went in and he attacked king, uh, the king of Og. Now, the king of Og was known. Now, I am one point, I was going to say 1.8, but the truth is I'm 1.785. Um, okay, uh, that's really my height. I'm almost 1.8, or 1.8 is 6 feet, right? So I'm, I'm just almost there. Uh, uh, six feet, but this guy, he, he had a bed of four meters, so it's literally double my height, all right? Four times two meters was his bed. He was known to be the fiercest giant that ever lived the land, and Joshua went to conquer. And when they called the bulls of Bashan, they're calling bulls that are extraordinarily large, the bulls that are difficult to tame, bulls that are, uh, 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 run wild, and bulls that are, uh, yeah, they're just difficult bulls. And he says, I'm and surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. You see, I believe when he wrote this, he's referring to a few seasons of his life where the Philistines and the Amalekites were chasing after King David. That was one of it. But I truly believe, now if you read 2 Samuel chapter 22, which is David's praise, David would also again refer to this section of his life as a section where King Saul was chasing after him. This was the portion, the, one of the longest period. I think King Saul chased after him maybe 20 years, if I'm not mistaken. It was one of the most difficult times of his life because your ally and the person that you honor chased after you. Wanting to kill you because he is jealous of the anointing that you have in your life. Let me just digress from David a little bit. I want to talk about the anointing. I want to talk about anointing at Presence Conference but I wanna, I wanna bring it here a little bit. I truly believe that each and every one of us, we have an anointing of God over your life. That God has anointed you for your season and God has anointed you to move in a certain direction that God wants you to move. And the fastest way to disqualify yourself from the anointing that God has poured over your life is to compare your anointing with somebody else's anointing. How come I'm not a cell leader like he or she is? How come I'm not as good of a preacher as he or she? How come I don't worship as well as the, the worship pastor? How come I don't, I don't know, whatever it may be. How come I'm not? How come I don't pray for the sick and that the sick is healed? The fastest way to get rid of your anointing, the fastest way to disqualify yourself is to compare yourself to somebody else's anointing. And that's how King Saul got disqualified. But that's another sermon altogether. You see, when King David was going through the most difficult season of his life, what he says, now this is the turning point of Psalms 22. And the moment you catch this and, and understand this, I believe it's going to be a breakthrough for you in your life. Verse 19, the dawn of salvation. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Before I go to the last line, you see, it says, my precious life from the power of the dogs. The dogs here is probably wild dogs. The dogs here could also refer to hyenas. But basically, it means that there is, there is dog. Like how many of you, when you walk down a street, a random street, all right? Uh, um, maybe not in PJ or some parts in PJ, but if you're from a village, like maybe I have, I was, you walk down the street and there are dogs. If you see one random wild dog, you're a little bit fearful, but not so fearful. 
all right? You go, okay, I can, I can tackle one-on-one. -on -one. Let's go. You and me, all right? Let's go, all right? Then you see reinforcements of seven other dogs. And then you start to shake and decide. You can't decide. Should I run, not run? I stay to fight, not fight? And if the dogs surround you, so you know, you're like, I have this thing, like only my wife knows, okay? But now I shall confess my sins to the whole church. I have this thing that I... I don't like wild dogs, all right? Like, if you, if, you, if you own a pet dog, like, I'm not against dogs, so please don't cancel me. Like, I'm really not against dogs. I, lo I love dogs, I mean, as a pet. So please train your dogs not to kill me, all right? Please, when I visit your house. They're fine. All dogs are fine. Whatever, no matter how big the dog is in your house, as long as the dog is tame and, and they don't, you know, chew my neck out, that's fine. But it's the wild dogs that I have something against. I have this vendetta against the wild dogs, right? So when I was younger, I was walking, like, I, I walk in my in my hometown all the time. Then I was surrounded by about seven dogs and they were barking and I understand the power of a herd of dogs that would surround you and they would bark and they would threaten to bite and they would threaten to, I don't know, you fear for your life at that point. And at that moment, I truly believe that if somebody didn't come and intercede, I probably wouldn't be standing here today, all right? So I'm so glad that uh, uh, two neighbors just came out and helped me chase the seven dogs away. But from that point onwards, I had this, this, this irrational phobia, fear of wild dogs. But when I read this verse, deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs, I understand when you are surrounded by your enemies, you are surrounded by people and you have nowhere else to go and your only form of deliverance cannot come from you, it has to come from an external source. And he drew his deliverance from the Lord God Almighty. And I want to encourage you today. If you feel like you're surrounded, if you feel like your life is, you know, you're surrounded by, not dogs, but you're surrounded by the enemy, you're surrounded by discouragement, you're surrounded by disappointments, the only way you can pull yourself out of the situation is not by your own strength, but by an external force that is the Lord God Almighty. And then he says, rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Now, in the NIV, the translation is not as beautiful as the KJV, all right? Then it says in the KJV, Lord, you answered my prayers, saving me from the horns of the wild oxen. So the word save here in Hebrew actually is the word answered prayer. So the psalm started in Psalms 2, you do not answer my cry. Then the turning point of Psalms 22 is in verse 21, he says, now you answer my cry. What is the point of all this? You see, there are 20 verses between not answer and answer. And I want to encourage you today. Pray till you see your breakthrough. You worship till you see your breakthrough. You move and retreat into the presence of God until you see your breakthrough. Imagine if David stopped at verse 15. He wouldn't have experienced anything. Imagine if he stopped at verse 20. He wouldn't have experienced anything, but because he's always constantly in worship, constantly in prayer, constantly in the presence of God, God says, now I will answer you at my divine time. Why would God withhold until his divine time? Well, when you see him again, let me know. I also want to know. We will never know. Why would God withhold something until four months later? When I'm most desperate now, why would you withhold? I don't know. 
Because God knows the future and it is our job to trust and obey, not our job to understand the workings of His hands and His inner workings in the universe. And here David says, you are now answered my prayer. And from henceforth, he declares faithfulness into this world. You see, when your enemies come against you, what is your initial position? You fight your enemies. But what did David say? I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor Him. Revere Him, all you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden His face from Him, but has listened to His cry for help. From you comes the theme of praise. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise Him. May your hearts live forever. You want to know the last secret of being a person after God's own heart? You see, there's a few moments in David's life that he had opportunities to take revenge and matters into his own hands. But instead, he blesses. This is the part of David's life that I am until today trying to do. And I pray that you join me in the struggle to be just like Jesus Christ. You see, when Saul came after David, we already know the story. He had many opportunities to exact revenge. But what did David say? I will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed one. Hallelujah. If you think that God's anointed one is only pastors and senior pastors, then let me correct you just for a little while. Do you know in Romans 13 that God says that He appoints the government over you? which means that He has anointed and appointed the government over you. He has anointed and appointed your boss over you. And I know you may have been treated badly. I know maybe you're frustrated with all some policies that have been made. I know. But if you follow the heart of King David, King David never slandered Saul. He never slandered God's appointed and anointed. He never even laid a hand on them. And all he said was, who am I to lay a hand on God's anointed one, you want to be a man of the God's own heart? When people come up against you and threaten to take everything that you love and desire, instead of inflicting revenge, you bless. Instead of inflicting revenge, you take a step back and you say, God, vengeance is yours, but my position is to bless. Because he, you, he said it, he, King David said it himself, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. Lord, there will come a time where you deliver me. But it is not now, but I will wait for that time. And while I'm waiting, I will withdraw and retreat into the presence of God. You see, it's not just King Saul. When his son Absalom revolted against him. Now this, oh, I may be able to identify with David when he, when he didn't curse Saul. But I wouldn't know how to identify with David when Absalom rolled against him in a civil war, revolt against his own father, the king. And Absalom was riding into Jerusalem, ready to fight his father. What did David do? David could have hid behind his walls. He would have survived. I mean, he would have been safe. It's Jerusalem, there's walls. You got, and he's got, he's got a better army. He's got the better generals. He would have survived. But David said, no, I will retreat. I would give my son the city so that there will not be bloodshed in the land. Whew. Now that's a king 
Now that's the man of the God's own heart. When your enemies scorn you, mock you, ridicule you, come up against you, and is ready to take the promotion that you're supposed to have, that is ready to take the results that you're supposed to have, ready to take the girl that you were 99% going to get the girl. Then there's this just Gaston swooped in and got the girl. Oh, you were 99% sure that promotion was for you. But then some guy, some random new hire came in with this Harvard mouth, got the promotion. That's, that's not me, by the way. Just, there's, there's no bitterness in my heart. Just a random example. What did King David do? He's so secure in his identity and in his who God has called him to be. All he did was he take a step back and he says, son, why don't you take the city? I will run. You can have it because what is mine and given by God will always be mine and God will avenge on my behalf. I believe King David is the best king in knowing when to retreat and knowing when to move forward. Man, that is the man after God's own heart. You know, there's another instance where he married Michal. Remember Michal? Michal was Saul's daughter. You know the price David had to, to, to pay to, to marry Michal? Is he has to go and get 100 Philistine foreskins, all right? If you don't know what that is, cool. Good for you. That's okay. He had to go and get it. And David went and above and beyond, got it and married Michal. And then down the line, when Saul hated David, Saul took Michal and gave Michal to another man in marriage. Now I'm telling you, if, like, I'm speaking to all the men in this house. If somebody took your wife and gave it to somebody else, another guy to marry, what would happen? What, what would you do when the, when the woman was, you know, when you have an opportunity to confront that man or an opportunity to confront your, your, your ex-wife, so to speak. What would you do? In your heart of hearts, the enemy that took your wife away from you. I don't know what I would do, and I don't want to say it in the, in the presence of God. <laughs> Just use your imagination. But I know what King David did. King David said, wow. King David said, I will make peace with you on one condition, that you restore to me my wife that is rightfully mine so that I can marry her once again and love her. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? When we betrayed, when we walked away, when we ran away, when we gave ourselves and prostituted ourselves to the things of this world, and we married the things of this world, we married the idols of this world, and we just walk away, we are bitter, we're scornful, we're hateful, we're unforgiving, we, we, we writhe in gossip, whatever it may be, we're just evil people. And when it comes a time to meet the judge, and the judge has every right to take our lives, what would the judge say? The judge says, I, I don't want to take your life. Here, here's my son. You take his life, but you, you are redeemed. Come into my presence and enjoy my presence. That is the heart of King David, and that is the heart of the Lord God Almighty, and that's why God says, this is the man after my own heart. Can you do it? Can you do it? If your ex-wife done something and she comes back to you begging for forgiveness, will you say, I forgive you and I want to love you once again? Will you do it? Men in this house, don't answer me. 
or even girls, would you do it? If your husband cheated on you and then he comes back begging for forgiveness, will you forgive him or you close the door? Never, never forgive. Get away from me. Never want to speak to you again, will you? Because if you want to be a man after God's own heart, you want your generations to remember you, you want your sons and daughters to worship the same God as you, then you do what David did because he ends this psalm this way. All the ends of this earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Do not take vengeance into your own hands because God rules over the nations. Then he says, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship him. Verse 30, posterity will worship him. Posterity is your, your generations, your children. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. You see, the word he has done it is the same word in the New Testament. When Jesus on that cross said, it is finished. Telestai, it is finished. Everything that I've been called to do, destined to do, it is finished. In David's life, this is why I believe he wrote this at the end of his life. I believe at the end of David's life, when you look through this whole, the difficulties and the hardship, I don't, I don't ever want to be a father of a rapist or a father of a murderer, never ever want to have my son revolt against me. But David went through all that. At the end of his life, he says, God, you are faithful and future generations will worship you because I never laid a hand on those who turned their backs against me. All I did was retreat into your presence and God took over and God redeemed David. And then he said, it is finished. What is finished? Now this is where I, I really want us to catch it. The destiny that God has have over your life, it is complete. Every single one of you here, including me, we have a calling and a destiny in Jesus Christ. What is that destiny? Somewhere, somehow, when you look into the destiny and the calling over your life, it will always got to do with the kingdom of God. It was always to advance the kingdom. It is always to glorify His name. It is always to obey Him. It is always to preach unto the nation, to baptize all people. It is always all these things. So if your life does not reflect any of this, if you're not advancing the kingdom, if you're not being called unto Him, you don't fear Him, you don't worship, then what are you called for? And there, today is a call to come back into your prophetic destiny so that at the end of our lives, we can say it is finished. I have run the good race. I have finished the fight. I have taken my baton and I've passed it to the next generation. The next generation that would praise His name, that would call Him Lord. So I, now I end with this question. If you want to be a man of the God's own heart, and if I were to sum it up with one answer, it is this. When we study First and Second Samuel in the weeks to come, I want you to always notice the same pattern that David had in this life. And I want us, us as I care, to follow his pattern. And this pattern is this. Whenever David has a problem, there is only one thing he would do first and foremost. Go read, go read the Bible. What would he do when he's faced with a problem? He would run to the altar and he would hold the horns of the altar and he would cry before God. He would run into the presence and he would cry before God. And God will always deliver him. That is the amazing part. 
David never once had to take revenge and take things into his own hands. All he did was run into a prayer altar and God delivered him. When he sinned and he did wrong, when he committed adultery and he, uh, with Bathsheba and he murdered Uriah, what did he do when Prophet Nathan rebuked him? What is the first thing he did? He never justified he never defended himself. He never even asked Nathan for forgiveness. What did he do? He ran to the altar and he held the altar and he says, God, would you forgive? And he repented before God for a period of time until the season ended. He ran to that altar and the beautiful part is, God says, your son with Bathsheba, your first one would die, but your next one, or your last one, your son called Solomon will be the next king of Israel. Why? Through Bathsheba? Because God wants to prove to all of us that no matter how bad you've done it, no matter how far you've run, He is a God that redeems. He is a God that will always redeem your life as long as we run to the altar, which is why I love worship. And today we're going to end in worship in two minutes because worship is the only thing we can give God. What else can you give God? You want to give God your money? You think he doesn't own the riches of this world? You want to give God your time? He has, he's infinite of time. He doesn't need your, you want to give God what, your clothes, your talents? Well, hello, where do you get your clothes or your talents? That's the only thing that you have is to run into the presence of God and worship, which is why prayer altars are, are so beautiful. You know, I was just telling, I think it was my wife, I was just telling my wife last year and a few other people, you know, when I, whenever time I'm stressed, there is one thing that I yearn for. It's my prayer, prayer closet. It's the Tuesday night prayer altars. And you see me there. I love, to, I love that I'm not anchoring because I'm not, I'm, I don't have to think about what is it. But I'm not anchoring. I just be there. I'm just worshiping. I, lo- I, don't, have to be, I don't have to be in front. It just, doesn't matter where I am. Just, I just worship. Because I know that in worship, God delivers and He will save. And He would answer my cry. And the call today is for you to love worship love the, the, the beginning songs love it they, we may not understand like today it may be new songs to you Christ be magnified it's by Cody Carnes I love the song but it may be new to you just worship says God I worship you I don't know the song Jesus but they know it let them sing it but I worship you I'm just going to worship I worship you God because you're worthy of my praise this is not worship I don't know the song why is Perlin singing it so lively she scares me. That's brilliant, by the way. No, that's not worship. I don't know the song, but Jesus, I, I, I love your presence. Ah, the young people can sing it, but I, I love your presence. I'm just going to worship you nonetheless. Do you know why we dim the lights in worship? We dim the lights not because we want to be cool. Trust me, we don't, we don't need to be cool in the presence of God. We dim the lights so that we are less aware of each other, so that we can just be free in worship. Because not every one of us we'll freely raise our hands in worship. How many of us will freely raise our hands? But when the lights are off, there is a chance now. There's a small chance that you will open up your eyes and mouth and sing and you will raise your hands in worship. There's a small chance. And that's why we dim the lights. We could keep the lights on, no problem. If everybody would praise and jump, no matter where you're sitting, oh, we'll keep the lights on. Because worship is not determined by how bright or how dark it is. Worship is worship. Worship is worship. Amen? So just the next last five to ten minutes, I want us to start this year with just loving the presence of God. 
That's why we call it Presence Conference. Because the next gen need to know what it means to love the presence of God. And I just want us to start this year by just coming to worship, coming to prayer, and just loving Him. No matter what you're going through, love Him. Father God, we just want to be a, we want to be a, a man after your own heart, Father God. Every time David has a problem, he runs to you first. You are the anchor of his soul. You are the anchor of his life. You are the anchor of his spirituality. Father Lord Jesus, teach me. Teach me to love your presence. Teach me to host it. Teach me, draw me close to you, Father God. Let me abide in your presence that come what may, rain or shine, hell or high water, I will not be moved because I understand what it means to be in the presence of God. Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Sarabha, Sarabha, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.